Welcome to Millennial Pagan Podcast. I'm your host, Autumn Wolf. And I'm Jarrah Stone. And in virtual studio today, we're actually reaching all the way across the pond. We have David Bramwell with us. Uh, how are you doing today, David? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I love that you call it the pond. <laughs> it's a big pond, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, the, the reason I do it, I actually have a couple of friends that live in England. And anytime we talk, especially when we were younger, they'd always say, hey, how's how's the weather across the pond? So it just kind of <laughs> stuck with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, everything is, everything is good here. I imagine the weather here, I know we British are... Um, expected to talk about the weather at any any occasion um <laughs> uh, it's um it's very cold here it's bizarrely cold for may it's i mean it's still dropping occasionally at night to below freezing which is not right because it's springtime yeah. here and you know the plants and the birds are are suffering mm-hmm. um but apart from that all is good and i and i'm based in brighton which i'm i'm sure some of your listeners would have heard of we are on the south coast right at the bottom of of the UK, and our most famous resident is is Nick Cave, the, yes. um, the master of goth, um, <laughs> and uh, and so it's always a treat to uh, to spot him. You can't miss him because he's he's about six foot three, and he always wears the most fantastic suit. Um, and Fatboy Slim, if if you know if people are into mm-hmm. their uh, kind of nineties nineties dance music, Big Beat Boutique. It's a town which Londoners like to escape to at weekends or escape to for longer periods or come to and never return home. Um, it's a rather lovely bohemian coastal town. Definitely one of the places I've, I've always wanted to visit whenever I get the, get the chance to go out. That all sounds amazing. Here in the desert, we're at, what, 98 degrees Fahrenheit here? It was 98 wow. degrees yesterday. Yes, wow. so that's actually kind of cool. We're under 100 degrees Fahrenheit, so that's <laughs> nice. Um what are we thinking Celsius? It's nine degrees Celsius, or it was, or it, no, it probably is about now, um, and it, that's mm-hmm. evening time here. Um, so I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I don't, I can't do the conversion, I'm sorry, but um, it's not anyway. We learned how to do the conversions in high school because we're the oddballs that have to have the weird mm-hmm. stuff, but yeah, like all things in high school, it went poof. Well, yeah, we, totally. we, we mix, you know, we mix kilometers and miles we mix kilograms and stone i think of myself in stone in terms of weight but not mm-hmm. pounds because i don't know what pounds are which is weird but i so i can so i think in terms of kilograms and grams for weighing you know food cooking a meal but in terms of my own my own physical weight it's stone and in terms of distance i will mix and match kilometers and and miles depending on who i'm with or how my brain is working so so we haven't got you know we haven't sorted out the imperial and the metric over here <laughs> at all but at least you learned both of them that's a good thing half learned half learned both of them. half yes. learned yeah we touched on it <laughs> well i'm guessing everyone at this point is now wondering why we asked David to come on with us other than to have some American versus British humor. Um, But David is an amazing author and musician, and he recently published a book called The Cult of Water and also a album by the same name with his band, Odd Fellows Casino. Nope. Yes. Ah, That's great. I was having trouble with that for some odd reason. Make fun of me later, listeners. (laughs) But before we dive into all of that and his amazing stories, because in the short period of time we had to talk before we came on, I learned a whole lot. So, but first, as we normally do, 
we're going to ask him to give us a tidbit of his coming of which or seeker story. Well, I grew up in a in a northern town called Doncaster, a very traditional mining town close to Sheffield, one of our biggest cities, which was a, a steel industry town. Both places went into decline in the 70s, 80s onwards. And Doncaster was, as we would say, a bit of a rough place to, to, to grow up in. And there was, the minor strike lasted for over a year in the, in the 80s when I was young. And even though Doncaster is, is a town with a larger population than Brighton, where I live now, so we're looking at um, a third of a million people in Doncaster, it was a town that did not have a single bookshop, not one. And which obviously I didn't strike me as strange as a kid because I had nothing to compare it to. So I grew up in a town without, I, I grew up in a family, a very, uh, a family with very kind of simple pleasures. You know, my family liked to do walking and gardening and my dad likes to play golf. And so I didn't grow up in a house with books and records. There were, there were three records in the house, no books. And the only access that I had to literature which seemed interesting was actually the school book cupboard which contained piles and piles of books from previous syllabuses that had no longer been used so my introduction to fantastical literature let's say came through finding these dusty piles of books by writers like Joseph Heller JD Salinger Graham Greene one book that had a huge influence on me was called Dark Waters Closing an anthology of fantastic literature which introduced me to everyone from Lovecraft to Flann O'Brien and Borges and 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 it got me turned on to th- thinking about things in in an unusual way let's say but there wasn't anything within my environment that offered me an opportunity to explore the esoteric, the unknown, the occult. And it wasn't until I left home at 18 and went to another depressed industrial city (laughs) uh, called Coventry, made famous in the 80s by the Scar Band, The Specials, who wrote uh, the song Ghost Town, uh, which got to number one uh, in our charts back in the 80s, and is a song basically warning people not to go to Coventry because it's a violent (laughs) and depressed place. I didn't know that, so I went there to do a degree. And it was finding a secondhand bookshop on the high street, which is still there, bizarrely, because it was such a long time ago. It was, it was nearly 30 years ago, called Gosford Street Books. And I went in and my epiphany, because we, we all have these epiphanies in our in our lives, and sometimes they are mystical out-of-body experiences. And sometimes they are just they just involve bookshelves and and words and enticing titles and i walked into that bookshop and i saw a section on magic and a section on psychology and i was drawn to it and i started buying very difficult books with no pictures in you know by people who intrigued me with names like carl jung joseph campbell alan watts alistair crowley Gurdjieff, and so on and so on. And some of these books, I just didn't understand. I didn't understand, but I was drawn again and again to to this material. And I became interested in Rudolf Steiner, the Austrian mystic who is best known in Europe for having set up a, a bunch of schools called the Rudolf Steiner schools. But I seemed to be drawn to the mystics of the early part of the 20th century. And when I moved to Brighton a few years after finishing my degree. I, I joined a theosophical society. Now, I don't know if you know, do you know your theosophist, Madame Blavatsky? And so this was a movement based in New York in the late 
19th century, early 20th century, who were some of the first people in in the West, let's say, to take a great interest in Eastern philosophy, to be challenging the mythologies of Christianity, to be challenging the mythologies of science, you know, saying actually neither of these are satisfying systems for us. Um, the idea that, you know, the universe is kind of dumb and mechanical uh, and we're all isolated and there's no meaning to anything or a narrative that says the universe has intelligence, but you better watch what you're doing, otherwise you're burning hell. Um, so, but then, you know, these people, this was a group of people who were exploring Indian philosophy, Hinduism, Zen Buddhism, uh, Sufism, and finding rich rewards in these alternative systems that, you know, some of which are, are pantheistic or, you know, what we'd now say is, you know, panpsychism, and had a very different attitude towards nature, which I know is something that unites the three of us and, and, and everybody listening, yep. I'm sure. And so I was drawn to these, these groups. I ended up going to Theosophy Weekends and finding that um, myself and my partner were, on average, about about 40 years younger than, than, you know, than most of the people <laughs> that were going. And, you know, we'd sit and listen to these interesting talks. And if it was after lunch and people had eaten too many biscuits, they'd all be nodding off and snoring. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is great. I'm really interested in this, but it's not quite, maybe it's not quite my people. So back in Brighton, I joined a cult who were called the revolutionary Gnostic shamans of the light and run by a guy called Adam, who was also a postman who had a reputation in Brighton as, as being a, the mystic <laughs> postman. And so I joined this group and there were, there was about 30 of us and it was pretty hardcore. We were learning about the ideas of the mystic, the Russian mystic Gurdjieff. We were learning about Tantra, tantric sex, lucid dreaming, did some amazing experiments with lucid dreaming, but it was quite, um, it was quite rigid in terms of its, the disciplines that we had to do, we were, you know, we were doing a lot of meditation. We were purifying ourselves. Adam was very concerned about the evils of masturbation and um, and that we had to perform sex in a certain way. I wasn't very happy with all this, but we, you know, I was I was interested in exploring these ideas. And it was a group that was very, yeah, I say, very clean living until they ended up affiliating with. Another group based in in Devon, which is uh, sorry, in Dorset, which is uh, southwest of England, and these guys were taking ayahuasca, and ayahuasca was unknown at the time. I mean, absolutely unknown. It was, and we're talking over twenty years ago now. Right, and for our listeners who are completely unaware of what ayahuasca is, there's a really great program on Netflix called Wellness, and there is a full episode about it, so you can kind of get a good basic understanding of what it is. <laughs> yeah. Its other name is Yahe. So it is, a, it is a South American psychotropic plant, which is said to give some of its users the, the power of telepathy and many, many other amazing claims. <laughs> and, and in fact, William Burroughs, there's, there's a great William Burroughs book called The Yahe Letters, correspondence between him and Allen Ginsberg. When Burroughs went into the Peruvian jungle in 1953 in search of what he called the final fix. And that was ayahuasca. And that was to try and cure himself of his heroin addiction and also to deal with his guilt of having accidentally killed his wife in a game that went tragically wrong. And so ayahuasca for yeah, for Westerners up until, you know, sort of 20, 30 years ago, well, sorry, up until the 1950s, 60s, was, was a semi-mythical psychedelic plant. We weren't entirely sure if this existed. We'd heard stories about it. So 
I began drinking ayahuasca with this group on a fortnightly basis. It was quite an intense period of my <laughs> of my life. <laughs> I do believe that these substances rewire you and mm-hmm. that they are not to be taken lightly at all and they should be taken in controlled circumstances, which they were in our group with guides. And But after a while, I became disenchanted with the group. I didn't feel that compassion was at the heart of them, that they were falling prey, some of them, to conspiracy theories. And also, probably to my greatest disgust, I suppose, was that I realized that they were homophobic. And so I didn't want to be part of a group that had those prejudices. And those prejudices were quite twisted because they were based on mythologies, or ancient South American mythologies that, uh, for whatever reason, kind of demonized gay people. And anyway, so I decided to leave that group. I learned a lot from it, and I appreciate my time with them. But I sort of, you know, as, as we do, I went off on my own quest, exploring, exploring a lot more ideas within Eastern philosophy, trying to get my head around Zen, being part of a Brighton Buddhist center here in town, which I enjoyed, but sort of feeling like I'd not found my tribe. And A few years ago, I decided that the town that I grew up in, Doncaster, took its name from the river, the River Don, which was originally called Danu. And the town was originally called Danum because it was a Roman stronghold. Doncaster sits in the middle of of Britain and, and the Don was a major industrial river. And the Romans decided to build a fort there and named the town Danum after Danu, the river goddess. And... I grew up in this town in which I had no relationship with the waterway, with the river that, that flowed through the centre of the town. It was heavily polluted, had been for you know over a hundred years due to industrial, the industrial revolution, and I decided that I wanted to reconnect with the river. And the idea of reconnecting with the elements seemed much more a much more joyful and more connecting way of a practice for myself. I'd done enough reading, enough esoteric stuff, trying to fathom the Kabbalah, trying to fathom, you know, a a lot of complicated ideas, very valid and important ideas, but wanted to do something a little bit more grounding. And so, and I wanted to learn about Dana. I wanted to learn about this river goddess who gave her name to, to my town. And so I walked the Don back to the source and I started to research the role and the symbolism of the water goddess in this country and how fast I became really fascinated by this, how much power and reverence we attributed to the nymphs and to the goddesses and the spirits of our, of our springs, of our lakes. And we honored them and we cherished them. And then what happened in an age of patriarchy is we, you know, we overpowered them. We, we killed them. And I feel that we're coming out of that period of I mean, we're not coming out of the per- period of, of destroying the planet. We we know that, mm-hmm. but but in terms of mm-hmm. our relationship to to local environment, we're we're waking up to to what's important. Our rivers in Britain, at least, our rivers are being cleaned up. We're now realizing that you know the most desirable property in any town is you know by trees, by woodlands, by waterways, by rivers, and obviously coastal towns by the sea. Everybody wants a view. People want to be by nature, by the elements. And so this was this was a journey of rediscovery and reconnection for me, and in a symbolic way, as a man, you know, actually wanting to show reverence to the river, to its goddess, and in part, having come to write about it, having come to make a record about it, it is partly fictionalized, because I imagine what it would have been to 
like to have traveled back in the past to a pre-Christian, pre-Roman time on this island and what people would have believed and what their rituals and practices would have been, which is which is conjecture largely because we don't know. We have no written, mm-hmm. very few written records. What we do have was written by monks who were Christians who had an agenda in, in how they they wrote about um, about these old practices. Or Roman conquerors trying to persuade people to give them more money. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I came across the Order of Bards, Bards, Ovates, and Druids a couple of years ago when I was asked to go to Glastonbury to perform the Cult of Water to tell this story. And I found myself in the company of people. It was a coming home for me. I was in the company of some people who were down-to-earth, joyful, compassionate, nature lovers, open-minded, enjoyed a good drink, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and they have a thing, if I pronounce it right, the Estidfod. Am I pronouncing that right? I don't think I am. But they have a thing within the Druid culture here in the UK where um, you're encouraged to tap into your creative side. And on the Saturday night, this was a this was a, a winter solstice gathering where where I first met all these people and performed. And on the Saturday night, it's basically Druids Got Talent. You know, like a lot of these people <laughs> get on stage um, oh, and, they, and they're singing and they're, and they're storytelling. And I just thought, this is brilliant. This is my tribe. So I would say that my journey... And I enjoy, I've enjoyed all the elements of this journey, but I feel like, I feel like Obod, being a druid, being a trainee druid, the training comes in, in three parts. And the first part, the first grade, the bardic grade, that's where I'm at. And I am a person I recognize from the beautiful way in which they describe the elements and how, how the elements relate to us and our personalities. I really strongly identify with, with fire and air. I'm a person, I feel driven and I think too much. And I'm aware that those are the qualities that can get out of balance in me. Welcome to the club. (laughs) (laughs) You have two air signs right here and we're both like, yep, think too much. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, fire and earth and water. I need, I need more earth and water. And I found myself, well, I, I found myself thinking, oh, this is, this is part of the reason why I wanted to reconnect with this river, go on this pilgrimage, this spiritual journey. The symbolism really made sense to me. It wasn't overly complex. And it's a chance to explore a path for yourself, but with people around to support you if you need that. Uh, and also because community is, is really, really important. So my journey has, has brought me to, to consider myself to be a, a trainee druid, still in the bardic grade, but not in any hurry to rush through it because I recognize particularly my air sign in me thinks I can do all this work. I can do all these exercises, all this training, all this reading, all these rituals. I can get them all polished off in a few months time and then I can move on to the next, the next level. And I was reading one of the exercises that I'd been set one morning and it said, if you're the kind of person who identifies with the air element, you're probably thinking right now, Oh, I can rush through this in a few months. And I thought, damn, damn, I've I've been caught out. And, and I've met people, now from Obod, who say, I've been doing the Bardic grade for nine years, and I don't want it to stop. And <laughs> I realize it's the old cliche of the journey, not the getting there. So I'm slowing down with my with my work. But I would say that I identify as a trainee druid. Yeah. Yeah, I think we both can 
connect to that experience because we were both heavily involved and Jara still is in the reclaiming tradition. And one of the things that they hand you first is Starhawk's sacred circle or spiral circle. Mm -hmm. And every single person who I spent time with at that time in my life, when they got that book, they were like, oh, I'll just tuck in and get it done and just read it and know. And I'm, I at that time was very much a book a week, book a week, like kind of person. And it makes you take it at the pace that you need. Mm. I'm still in the middle of it. And it's been what, three, four years at least. Yeah, about. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's certain texts that make you go at its pace or the pace that it needs. And it has that kind of magic to it. So I can feel that definitely because it was like, <laughs> I want to rush through this. And I rushed through the first chapter and went, wait, I, I have to go back and reread that because I, I missed something. I'm in yeah. the middle of the second chapter and I'm like, I'm not, what I read is disconnected to what I'm doing and reading now. Mm. Mm-hmm. One of the exercises that I really enjoyed when working with the earth element, which was the first part of the Bardic Grades, and it suggested it's you know it's it said I'm the kind of person that has a butterfly mind, and I was thinking yes I am totally the kind of, I am the kind of person that can watch a film, and then a few months later if asked what the film was like I'd say well it was great please don't ask me what it was about because I cannot remember um, <laughs> at all I think it had Nicolas Cage in it or hang on no no was it Denzel Washington I can't remember anyway it had somebody in it who was famous and then some things happened why can't I remember this this is frustrating and so it suggested learning poetry which is something I've never done before and I really enjoyed the challenge of finding poems that I love and when I'm training myself to learn the poem. The only way I can learn the poem is to try and understand the poem, which means that I need to give the poem my full attention. So it's a meditative practice and it's an amazing practice because I realize I've never done that before. I'm actually trying to unravel the beauty and the magic and the enchantment of these words rather than just scanning it and going, oh, I like that, that's really nice. And one of the poems that I, I'd set, not the whole poem, because this would take me a lifetime, but one mm-hmm. of the poems I, I set myself the challenge to learn is Allen Ginsberg's Howl. And for the guttural, explosive dynamism of these words, and mm-hmm. I've only, uh, and, and I haven't gone back to it for, uh, God, if you said to me, can you recite it now, I'd, I'd probably go red with embarrassment and, and stumble over the first few lines. But I know that it's imprinted in my head a lot more than it was before I started the exercise. But I've just, I've really enjoyed that. You could look at this dispassionately and say, well, this is just an exercise for memory. What's this got to do with paganism or what's this got to do with Wicca or what's this got to do with Druids? But it absolutely is because it's about focus. It's about intention. And there is magic within that. You know, I greatly believe that there is there is yeah. a strong connection between magic and language. So, yeah, the, these kind of exercises are really, really making a difference to me. You have no idea how hard you just hit me over the head with that, <laughs> with, with, with that state, with just that right itself. Mm-hmm. Because as a creative, I mean, I'm there's a lot of context between the lines, a lot of magic in every given word. And I think that's something that I think I'm going to have to start taking a little bit more to heart is actually studying everything behind the words, behind the meanings of everything. So, yeah, I think you just like changed my year <laughs> right now just with that. Mm-hmm. Well, do you know what? One, one of the people, one of the people who I, I've worked with on, on a couple of occasions 
is Alan Moore, who some folk will know as the comic book writer and, you know, the, the man behind Watchmen and V for Vendetta and From Hell and what else did he do? Um, Promethea, just amazing, you know, like the most amazing body of work. And having had the great pleasure of, of visiting his home in Northampton, I'm sure I'm not, I'm not revealing anything that isn't already widely known about Alan Moore, but, you know, he likes a bit of a smoke, okay? He likes a bit of a smoke. <laughs> and when I say he likes a bit of a smoke... <laughs> I'm talking I'm talking an iPhone size block of of cannabis um per day and I I joke not um so he likes to smoke and all of the things that I was warned about the evils of cannabis when I was a kid I was warned about you know like first of all you'll just you'll have the nibbles all the time you'll never stop eating right okay so that's bad you'll have no energy no enthusiasm for doing anything you'll lose all of your drive okay your memory will be shot to pieces right you won't remember a bloody thing Alan Moore disproves all of those all of those <laughs> myths around around cannabis this is a man who remembers everything that he reads. I mean, everything. He remembers every bloody word. He is driven like no other creative I have ever met. And he hardly eats a bloody thing. I mean, I took around a packet of biscuits. We talked about, <laughs> we talked about water and magic for three hours and, and he didn't, he did not touch a biscuit. So, uh, you know, unless of course it's the old thing of, you know, if you push something f hard enough, you know, you kind of flip around to the other side. I mean, maybe, maybe right. that's, that's happened with him. But I, I mean, I am in awe of a man who, when, <laughs> when I, when we were talking about, um, about the theme of rivers and river goddesses in literature, and Alan goes, he said, oh, yeah, um, well, I've not read it for, um, I've not read it for about 35 years, but I think, I think there's a river in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. I think it goes, um, river run past Stephen Adams from Swerve of Shore to Bend of Bay brings us by a commodious beacus and a recirculation to Howarth Castle and environs and beyond. I think it's that. I think that's the first line. It's like, how the fuck do you remember <laughs> that that is the first line of, of, of a book you read 35 years ago? And if you just if you just carried on, he'd just regurgitate the rest of the book. It's astonishing. But um, yeah, Alan Moore is, has been instrumental in helping me get to grips with an understanding of magic because he is the only person that's been able to give a definition of magic where I've thought, I get that, I can work with that, and it feels grounded. And his definition, and I, I don't know whether it comes from Alistair Crowley or not, is magic is intentional manipulation of consciousness, and that's it, right? So all art can be seen as magic, all fiction can be seen as magic, all advertising can be seen as magic, an insidious but very efficient, effective form of, of magic. Mm -hmm. And I think, I get that, I get that. And then that makes, you know, and he says, what, what do you do with that as a creative? Well, you make sure that you're more mindful in the work that you are creating, because be aware that there is magic behind what you're doing. So what do you want to do with that magic? What do you want to do with the intention behind this? What do you want people to feel and think? So I think the cult of water, I know we've not got on to kind of properly talking about what it is yet, but the cult of water was probably one of the first things that I've created where... I had Alan Moore in my head, whispering away, saying, what do you want to achieve with this? What do you want the audience to feel? You know, when, when, when I've performed it live in the past, you know, what do I want people to feel when they walk into, into a theatre 
or a, a movie space or or a festival tent or wherever I'm I'm doing it. So that's been I've really I've learned a lot. I mean, I, I think he's a genius. Yeah, yeah I honestly like just doing because I've I've done research on Alan Moore, and when I found out that you had worked with him, I'm like, okay, this is definitely on the right path because I'm a huge nerd. I mean, I I've I have read Watchmen probably more times than I can even fathom. And because I, I read it back when I was younger and it, to me, it was just a comic book. And mm-hmm. then now, you know, being in the, in the more magical realm, you know, read it, going back and looking more at his, at his works and his thought process of actually doing all of, all of his beautiful imaginative stories. It has a new meaning behind everything. Yeah. And I'm nerding out in <laughs> like my childhood is nerding out. But then also <laughs> like I just felt a wash of like the spirit just saying, hey, this is the focus right here. This is where this is what you need to be listening to. Because literally I just just hearing you say all that just kind of gave me huge chills and just letting me know, yeah, the intent behind the creation. Mm. Well, I came to I'd read some of Alan's work when I was younger, but there'd been a long period, I think, where I hadn't really engaged or known what he was up to. And I had the chance to meet Haley Campbell, who is the daughter of Eddie Campbell, who did the illustrations for uh, From Hell. Mm-hmm. But he also, I said to Haley, what's your favorite, you know, you've, you've met, she, Haley wrote a book about Neil Gaiman and she kind of, she knows that world very well. She knows them all. She talks about Uncle Alan, you know, she grew up, you know, with Uncle Alan. And, uh, she said, I'm going to give you a tip. I think one of Alan Moore's best pieces of work that gets overlooked is called A Disease of Language. And I'd not heard of it. And it has become one of my favorites. And A Disease of Language, for a start, as a title, is an Alistair Crowley line where it's Crowley's definition of magic. Magic is a disease of language. And within this book are two monologues that Alan delivered back in the, I think in the late 90s, early noughties, with music. They were performed only on one occasion. And they and the, and the words are so poetic, so beautiful, and so poignant. And there was a musician on stage who was working around the, the words. And Eddie Campbell had said to Alan, you know those monologues you did? They're bloody good. You know, it's a shame that they don't exist in book form. Do you have a transcript? And I will illustrate them. Alan, of course, hadn't kept a transcript. <laughs> um, so Eddie, Eddie had these recordings because they are available on CD. So they're The Birth Call and Snakes and Ladders and Highbury Working. And there's another one. There's a bunch of them came out, about five came out um, over a number of years. And there's a lot about magic and a lot about language within those two, those two stories, The Birth Call and Snakes and Ladders um, within. Snakes and Ladders is exploring one of the tarot cards, the the woman dancing with the snake and, and Alan talking about, and I don't, I don't know the tarot. So apologies if I'm, if I'm not representing that correctly, but um, his whole idea that in this card, the woman is, is imagination and the snake is DNA. And it's the dance of the two. It's the dance of the immaterial realm and the material realm that leads to creation. And then he goes on to really dig deep into why making things as a creative, whether you're an artist, a writer, musician, whatever, why it's really, really bloody hard to make something out of nothing and to make it good enough that it becomes enchanting, it becomes inhabited by magic. 
But he basically is writing this going, but go on, go on, try a bit harder, go on, it's worth it. And you feel, you know, if you're someone that's trying to make something, to finish a book or to start a book or to engage in something creative, but something challenging, and you think, oh God, where do I start? Read A Disease of Language, because there's bits in it where you just feel like Alan is is just singing to you with these words and and encouraging you with every morsel of his body. He's encouraging you to go out and do that most difficult thing, to create something beautiful and enchanting. So, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of Disease of Language. A, I love recommending it if people don't know Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it in my notes right now. <laughs> I see you with your intent of okay, and then we're going to get that next. Yep. Because, I mean, that's one thing, like, I've honestly never heard of that from Alan Moore. So it, it's one of those, okay, I'm paying attention to this. <laughs> Bing. There's a reason that I'm being told about this right now. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, one of the reasons why I wanted to mention that as well as just singing its praises was when I encountered, after meeting Haley and reading A Disease of a Language and then tracking down the original recordings of these performances live and they're out there on the internet it was a huge inspiration to me so when i started having this feeling that i wanted to create a piece of work called the cult of water which was a personal psychogeographical exploration of a river that i grew up next to and wanted to reconnect with but also wanting to explore themes of magic and the role of the feminine within within water and what this means or has meant to different cultures and different aspects, particularly of British folklore. And so Alan was a, was a massive influence. It's like, I just want, you know, like you hear something or you read something and you think, I want to do something like that. And so I, it began life as a, a sort of as a theatre show where I wanted to set the space up through ritual so that when people walked in, they felt that they were entering uh, you know, a different kind of space. And do you know what? I, I'm sure it's the same in America. Lighting candles in theatres is such a, <laughs> it's such hard work getting the health and oh, safety yeah. people to go, particularly if you're in a bloody church. If you're doing it in a deconsecrated <laughs> church, they're like, whoa, absolutely no candles. And you go, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, people were lighting candles in this building. <laughs> and they're going, no, 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 we can't. <laughs> Wherever I've performed this, I fought tooth and nail to be able to to burn incense, to light candles, to have the space in pitch black, and it's it's so gratifying when you you're behind the curtain listening to the audience as they come in and hearing the change of voices or hearing them commenting or or saying, "What's that smell? God, that smell! That's so oh, that's lovely, or that's weird, or and knowing that you're having you're having an effect." And then knowing that the intention of the effect with the visuals and with the words that you use, can you take them from A to B? Can you achieve this one thing? For me, what I wanted to achieve was to enchant the audience. I wanted them to feel taken on a, on a journey. Which obviously, we're going to use the river metaphor, um, you know, to let them flow, to let the time flow, flow away. So they're, they're losing, they're not sitting there fiddling with their phones or thinking, where's this going to end? Right. And I think, I hope that was achieved. But um I, yes, wanted to turn this into into a book and an album as well, which was partly through 
people asking if I would do that. So, so before we dive to. in more into the cult of magic, I have one question before we go on break. Would you describe your magical or spiritual practice a little bit? And if you worship any specific gods or work with any specific gods? I don't work with any specific gods. I Most days I'd suffer from insomnia from a, an overactive mind. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> if I don't sleep, mornings are difficult. But I would say most mornings, the majority of mornings, I get up between 6 and 6.30 and I have a fire down in my living room and I light a fire and I light candles and I arrange an altar which honours the four elements and the four directions and I will meditate and I will engage in, in rituals, some rituals that are directed through the work of the, of the bardic grade. Others might be things that I feel like doing. And I do reading and I do poetry recital to myself, um, as you know. Sometimes there'll be music involved, so I'll do chanting. What I've not had the chance to do, and it's been a year and a half since I joined, is I've not had the chance to do this with other druids because of lockdown. So yep. the next gathering will not be, is not planned until, until winter uh, mm -hmm. this year. To be on the safe side, you know, they just, you know, they people can't afford to arrange, uh, you know, complicated weekends and then suddenly find that they're pulled at the last minute and, you know, organisations collapse, don't they? Loss of finance. So it's been a fairly solitary practice on my own, but equally, I've spent a lot of time out in nature as well. So every time there is, you know, a special day to celebrate, whether it's Beltane or whether it's Imolk or, you know, then I'll be out engaging with nature and doing rituals that are meaningful to me and meaningful to my partner. So that's my practice, I think. And I would like to think that art is part of the practice as well, mm -hmm. that the intention behind the art increasingly over the years. I mean, I started out as a writer. I started out writing guidebooks and, and travel, but nowadays it's much more, it's much more focused around the themes of magic, uh, enchantment, folklore, etc. So that to me is part of the practice. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, listeners, I'm sure you're going to hear an amazing ad about our Patreon page while we go and refresh our drinks and whatnot. <laughs> Millennial Pagan Podcast is exclusively supported by Patreon. Listeners like you can get great benefits from your favorite show, such as at $1 a month, you get a personalized shout out at the end of the next full length episode. At $5 a month, you receive a thank you card in the mail with a Millennial Pagan Podcast button and sticker enclosed. Additionally, $5 a month supporters have access to our monthly 30-minute minisodes. Patreon supporters are also the first to learn about new and exciting updates to Millennial Pagan Podcast. More benefits and exclusive content to come. Audio is provided by Goblin Tech Productions. All right, and we are back. And again, we are talking to David Bramwell, and we're going to go into the subject of this beautiful piece of work called The Cult of Water that David has so wonderfully put together. And we did take some time to actually go over it before the show. And I'm, number one, the reading itself, I'm floored by it, fascinated by it, and the music. So you don't know my history with music, but music is my gateway to everything. And this wonderful piece of music, this this wonderful album 
it's going on my playlist. It's going on my constant playlist because it's so beautifully done. And I mean, just I know that the, our listeners can't see, but all the wonderful keyboards and synthesizers you have behind you, it's <laughs> distracting. It's a little bit distracting. <laughs> but personally, I'm actually in a band where I play the guitar, so it's kind of a bit of a synth and keyboard. Respect to you for playing Thank the guitar. <laughs> But it's definitely, especially with something like this, that has so much meaning behind it and how easy it is just to drop in and get transported to a completely different universe. It speaks volumes to the creator. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you. Um, I think I'm blushing a little bit. (laughs) Aww. (laughs) It's the first time that I've brought together two disciplines which have been a passion, you know, for, for pretty much all of my life. I bought my first keyboard when I was when I was eleven, and inspired by the kind of the metal and the and the rock and the prog that I was listening to at the time. At the age of eleven, I wrote a song called "The Black Phantom," <laughs> and I'll spare you the lyrics. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, music has been a passion. So Oddfellows Casino have been a, a, an outfit I've been with for twenty years. So we had a brief moment of success in the mid-90s with a New York record label called Shimmy Disc, which was run, I don't think it's run anymore, but it was run by a guy called Kramer, who was the bass player in the Butthole Surfers. And he was half of uh, Bongwater, and he produced bands like Galaxy 500 and When People Were Shorter and Live Near the Water and great names like that. And so we were on, we were on Shimmy Disc for a while, but then Oddfellows Casino, and, that, and we were sort of quite a sort of psychedelic-y, Britpop-y kind of band, mm-hmm. somewhere between the Pixies and Blur maybe. And then I started doing the ayahuasca. <laughs> and, and I absolutely, I just feel, I know it in my bones that it contributed to this not a U-turn, but a, I mean, a dog leg or whatever you want to say. The music really changed. And I was drawn to wanting to create music in which the guitar wasn't at the forefront of the sound, but everything that would have been the guitar was starting to be replaced by other instruments. So I started working with a cornet player and a flute player and a clarinet player and bringing more vintage synthesizers, you know, kind of Moogs and Oberheims and, and things like that into, into the sound. And then over the years, the guitar kind of crept back in because I missed it. And so now it's more of a sort of super mix of whatever whatever's to hand whatever instruments you know i'll layer strings if it needs strings i'll just use old vintage synths and bleeps and and sounds that are keyboard driven and other times it'll be more acoustic more folky it's a bit difficult you know when people say what kind of genre is it i'm not entirely sure but it mixes there is a genre over here which we call pastoral psych folk and that's usually what i say which is a little bit of psychedelia and a little bit of folk and then throw in a cream tea and a pint of bitter in an english pub and you've kind of that's sort of what you've (laughs) what you've got and a bit of Shakespeare. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Is that good? I don't know if that's a good definition. But but it was the first time I'd managed to bring the two together. The band had always been one outfit that was doing one thing. And, you know, in good years, we were playing European festivals and having, you know, okay album sales. And then writing, I've written quite a few nonfiction books. I wrote a book called The Mysterium, which was a, a modern day book of, sorry, a book looking at modern day unexplained mysteries and an occult autobiography uh, called The Haunted Mustache which partly talks about my years um, in the cult and drinking ayahuasca and coming to Brighton and going to spiritual churches and attending seances and just finding that wonderful esoteric underbelly of the town. But this was the first time I had the chance to bring narrative and music together. And so 
And as I said, it, it actually started life as a BBC experimental radio program called Dead Flows the Dawn. And if you're in the UK, I'd say I'd send the link, but I don't think you're able to access it in the States. But um, if you can, that's the name of it. You can you can find this program. And then it evolved into a live event where I composed the music and I narrated the story on top. And I also gathered archive footage of our industrial past, of the River Don, of rituals. Some of the stuff is kind of reenactment. I found old black and white reenactment videos of druids. And I put all those together with contemporary footage as well, and then made it this almost kind of stream of consciousness story. One of the stories that I came across whilst piecing this together was a guy called Mark Golding who lives down the road an hour away in Hastings. And his, this, I mean, this is absolutely a true story. And it's such a beautiful story um, that I, have, I wanted to include it within the narrative of the Cult of Water because it seemed like a, a lovely way to, to show the magic of water itself, but also the magic of intention. And Mark's 21-year-old son had gone to Thailand for a holiday and he'd been struck down by a rare lung disease that potentially was going to kill him. And it was, and he was in hospital over there and medical debts were spiraling. They couldn't afford to have him flown home. One of the newspapers here did a campaign to fundraise to have Gus, his son, flown back to the UK. Gus is taken to hospital. He's critically ill. Mark, his dad, is an old hippie. And his response to, to his son being on death's door is to go into the local woodland, drop two tabs of acid, and ask the spirits of the woodland and the waterways for help. So he does this, and he is told that there's a blocked spring in this woodland, and he sees the fractal image of these waterways, these tributaries, and he sees them superimposed over the fractal image of his son's lungs. Because if you think about it, you know, lungs and tributaries of water, they look very similar, like the reflection of a, of a tree in winter on, on the ground. There are many things, you know, that uh, mirror each other in, mm-hmm. in nature. And Mark sees this big block, you know, this big red spot, X marks the spot, which was the blockage in his son's lungs, but also the blockage of a spring. And the spirits say to him, unblock the spring and you'll you'll save your son's life. You'll unblock his lungs. So Mark does this. It takes him six weeks. It's a very dense and, and muddy uh, woodland, St. Helens Woods. But he finds this spring and he digs away and he unearths evidence that this has been a sacred spring. There's a lot of stonework. It's hundreds of years old and it's a beautiful and mysterious place. So he cleans it all up and he starts to take the water from the spring to his son in hospital and his son survives. And Mark says, it was the water from the spring that saved my son. Whereas Gus, who doesn't share his father's, his father's kind of cosmic worldviews goes, yeah, I, I think it was the medicine dad. I think it was the medicine hospital. <laughs> and, his, and Mark goes, I think it's both, son. I think it's both. But it's, it's a really, it's an extraordinary place. And added to the magic of the place is the fact that only a hundred yards away from this sacred spring was an old boarding house called Netherwood. And it was the resting home of Alistair Crowley in his final years. So whether or not wow. Crowley would have walked, probably not. I don't think it would have sort of fitted in with the kind of the ritual magic of the OTO, but um, I could be wrong. But he lived very, very close, very close to this spring. And there's a huge beech tree that stands 
at the front of this, the, the thing's on three levels. You know, the water f- pours from this font into a pool that you can bathe in. And, and I've, been, I've been and done rituals there, and it's, it's really magical. And this, this beech tree stands right at the top of it. And somebody a long time ago has carved the word alchemy into this tree, and you can see that it, I mean, the bark has grown back over the woods. You can see how, how old it is. It's a strange and mysterious place. And I love this story because, because you can interpret the story how you like. You can have the the scientific, sort of pragmatic, rationalist approach that Gus did, which was, it wasn't the water, Dad, it wasn't the magic, it was just the hospital. But I just thought it was a beautiful story to end with. And I think what has really struck me over the years is that in the West, we have been taught to feel detached from nature. The narrative of Christianity, the narrative of monotheism, and the narrative of science, which inherited many elements of monotheism. It inherited the narrative of hierarchy, that there is a hierarchy at play in the universe. And Christianity, well, any any monotheistic religion, says that God's at the top of that hierarchy. Underneath, we sit, and underneath us sits nature. And everyone has the pecking order in in that hierarchy. But when science removed God and said, we don't need God in this story. We know we are atheists. The universe is driven by blind forces, by mechanical uh, stupid forces. There's no intelligence behind this. But you still have power and dominion over, over nature, so you can still exploit nature. So we still, you know, I think about things like animal experiments done in the name of science, intensive farming. We're cruel. We torture animals. And we do it because we still place ourselves above animals. And I think, you know, that is just one example of our detachment, I think, from the interconnectedness of everything, which we know. And we have those experiences, paganism, Wicca, Zen Buddhism, psychedelics. I think one of the common themes for all of these is, of the mystical experience, is having that sense of the dissolution between you and the other. You know, we have an us and them mentality in the West. You know, you sit on one side of the fence or the other side, you know, like you're on the left, you're on the right, you're for this, you're against that. And yet, when you have these experiences, however you come to them, they break that down and they make us see that everything is a net, everything is a network, everything is connected. One of the people who's really brought my attention to this is Alan Watts, reading the the 60s philosopher Alan Watts, who articulated Eastern ideas in a, in a very lucid way, in a very entertaining way. But I, but I see, you know, I see it within within paganism. I see it within the Druid group that these are the things that I think bring us together, that, that we that we all, why we're all drawn to this work, I think. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. No, I, I agree. Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's always no, like, and every time I have this coming of witch story moment for our listeners, we have the guest kind of says that, like, I felt detached from something. And I came here looking for that. And I, this is where I found it, or I yeah. found it at this branch. And then I started losing something else and went to a different. So it's kind of that back to water flow of yeah. spirituality that um, when you enter into the pagan realm, you kind of get this freedom. And we expect people to change and to evolve. Yeah. And, and of course, and water is just is such a powerful metaphor in so many ways, because water, you know, we, we feel that we can separate water. You know, we 
try and imagine it as sort of separate droplets. But we know that water is a, um, well, I was going to say it's a flow. It is a thing that it's a dance, it's a movement, it's an event. Mm -hmm. Alan Watts talks about comparing our own lives with a whirlpool. You can go to a river where whirlpools appear and you say, look, there's a whirlpool. It's a thing. It looks like a thing, but it's part of something bigger. And you can't separate the whirlpool from the water. They are they are interdependent. They are acting together. And there's so many great, great metaphors that I think can really inform our lives. One of the things that I researched for the cult of water was a form of therapy in Japan called, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's, it's I think it's Kawa, K-A-W-A. And it compares the three stages of the river's life to our lives. You know, the juvenile river, we think of the juvenile river, the young river at the top of the mountain, and it's got power and it's clear um, and it's dynamic and it's and it's moving and it's, wow, but it, it's shallow and it hasn't gathered any life and depth to it yet. And then you get to the, you get to the, you know, when the river starts to slow down, it reaches the, the valley bottom and it starts to broaden and it starts to get depth and it starts to be carrying things. And sometimes it's carrying baggage that's slowing it down, you know, to, to, to <laughs> the boulders are too big or it's full of crap. And, and, uh, and then the final stage of a river just before it reaches the sea, you know, when it's really broad and there's so much life in it. So, you know, there's mammals and fish and, and, and plant life, but also, you know, the river can be full of dirt. It could get silted up. It can get blocked as we all, as we all can, you know, as we, as we get older. And these are such great metaphors for, you know, for the journey of, of us through our lives. And then, of course, the great mystery is, do you consider that the river is no longer a river when it reaches the sea? Is it transforming into something else or is it just continuing on a permanent cycle around and around and around the cycle of life rather than our linear approach to life? And one of, one of the themes that came up again and again for me in the cult of water was, was the role of the line in the circle. And, and I really wanted to dig deep with this and, and explore this about, and, and I realized that there is, there's always a danger of, certainly in terms of ascribing gender to, to these things. There's always a danger of falling into, into cliche or, or being presumptuous about things. But it can't be denied, certainly in European folklore, that feminine power is more strongly associated with, with rivers and with wells and with springs and male energy more associated with monoliths and rocks and things that point upwards and don't move. <laughs> and, and, and when I think about the, you know, the pre-Roman landscape in Britain, it would have been inhabited with monoliths and it would have been inhabited with stone circles and a lot of waterways that we don't see anymore. We know that water flowed around Stonehenge and Avebury. What we're seeing now are skeletons with these monuments. And it seemed very interesting. You know, we can look at the phallic connection of the line and the circle with male and female genitalia. We can look at them in terms of time, linear time and circular time. And also with, with movement as well. When I think of a city and we think of the phallic nature of buildings in cities or churches, they're static or a monolith, they're static objects. And then the river just brings curves and wiggles and life and fluidity and movement. And these things are complementary. And it's only when one becomes out of balance and, you know, had a, an age of imbalance of patriarchy of too much of the male, too many things pointing up in the air and too many things causing, causing problems and pollution and, and destruction. And, and I got thinking about how looking at these symbols going way, way back into the past, and then thinking about the binary code that drives the internet, that drives the digital realm. And, you know, can we connect? I, in a fanciful way, I imagine this the way of connecting the two together, you know, from, from the symbolism and, and rituals of thousands of years ago, and then 
to another virtual realm, another mythical realm. The internet is a mythical realm and it's driven mm -hmm. by lines and zeros is driven by ones and, and circles and i like that i just wanted to play with that as a as a theme yes that's beautiful so the cult of water is a fictional work but it comes off as very much a your pilgrimage to reconnecting to this space that you lived in for a very long time what kind of advice would you give somebody who reads your book and goes i want to do that myself where would they start well i'd, it's, I'd say it's it's only about 10% fictional, I would say. Mm. It's obviously I didn't travel back in time to three, 4,000 years ago. <laughs> but in terms of the, war, the journey that I did and the, and the stories that I tell in exploring and unpacking the industrial history of the river, our industrial history and relationship and the folklore and mythology, that's all, that's all real. And I, I explore things like thalassophobia, which I know a lot of people suffer, the fear of dark water, the fear of deep water, being lost at sea the loneliness that can kind of take over us when we, when we think of those things or experience. There's a number of books that I read by people who had also gone on these pilgrimages, either from the source to the sea or from the sea to the source. I didn't walk from the sea. Doncaster is, is about 40 miles to the source of the Don, which sits in the Pennines, which are the closest we have to the kind of wilderness in England. And I would say, and I have been asked this before, and by people in, in the States, not just in the UK, and you need to kind of dig into your local history and find the myths and the stories around your local rivers. And just, you know, it's not hard to work out which way to walk to find the source and plan a few days or however long it might take to walk along that waterway if you can. I think the I think the stories will come to you. The experiences will come to you as well in doing that. But you know, I can't offer advice on preparation because it obviously depends where the river is and and what what state it is. There was a guy in the UK that decided that he wanted to follow the River Trent all the way to the sea. The River Trent is another large industrial river, but it also has a tidal bore which is called the Ager. And that means that if you get caught when the sea is coming in, I mean, you're fucked. Basically, you know, he was in a um, he was in a canoe. Um, and so, you know, he got out of the canoe and cycled the rest of the way because he didn't want to get caught in this tidal bore. So you've got to know, you've got to study the, well, water is, is supposedly the most powerful force on the planet, more powerful than anything else. You know, we give it enough time, it will cut through anything. I mean, we know that very well here in Arizona. I mean, we got we got the Grand Canyon. I was about well, to exactly. say, we're exactly. the Grand yeah, Canyon yeah. state. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, it, it's, um, I don't know, a, a planet is a pilgrimage and, and is an adventure. And one of the things, uh, I suppose serendipity and synchronicity are, are your friends in these kind of adventures. I discovered whilst walking this river and whilst researching this river, so Danu is, who gave her name to the Don, was a, or is the Hindu goddess of primordial waters and the Danube in Europe is another river named after after this goddess and and the don in Russia uh, sorry in Scotland there's a don in in Russia as well i was walking through sheffield which is the largest city that the river passes through and discovered that there is on the tallest building in the city there is a god of fire and forge who stands there on the top of the of the town hall who is Vulcan, the Roman god of fire and forge. And he was adopted as a symbol by the steel industry in Sheffield. And 
the steel industry in Sheffield was responsible for dumping cyanide into the river for making the river biologically dead by the early part of the 20th century by artificially heating the waters. I mean, this is not a condemnation of the steel industry. You know, there's many good things that came out of, out of steel, mm-hmm. but, but you know, we abuse the landscape. And I thought to myself, I'm following this story about a river goddess, and here we have a water goddess, and here we have a god of fire and forge who's standing, you know, like hundreds of feet in the air. And this was a battle of the sexes, you know, that happened happened over time. And uh, we've got a mythological battle here, and the whole thing has gone full circle. The steel industry has pretty much collapsed. The largest steelworks is now a science theme park, and the river is being cleaned up. It's been rejuvenated. Only yesterday I was sent images on Twitter of red deer swimming through the city centre. This is extraordinary for the UK, you know, to have deer in the middle of an industrial city, you know, using the river as a, as a, as a pathway. Salmon have returned, and the, this whole transformation of the area is, I think, is in, is in keeping with this resurgence of interest in paganism, in environmentalism, in Wicca, in goddess worship, in having had enough of an age of patriarchy. It all seems to be pointing in a good direction, whether we have enough time to see this unfold and hopefully overtake a long age of selfishness and competition and greed and aggressive world leaders who we won't name. You know? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But uh, yes, I, I really enjoyed researching the, the stories. And I think it's yeah, serendipity. It's when themes come to you that you weren't expecting. And when you talk to people as well about these things, and someone goes, did you know this? And you go, no, I didn't. And you add that to your little collection of, of synchronicities. And um, so, Leah, lots of lovely things came while I was researching this and things that I wasn't expecting. If that's, if that's good advice, I hope it is. I think so. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your closest river? Well, is the um, Tempe River, that one's man-made, right? Yeah, that, that one's man-made. Honestly, mm. I don't know if there if there's one connected to Lake Havasu. I mean, I know that's decently close. So most of our water here in the Phoenix Valley area is man-made water. It used to be a valley that was completely filled with water back in the forever ago. But yeah, most of it's man-made. I grew up in North Georgia, which our listeners are aware of. And at one point to get to work, I had to cross the Chattahoochee three different times. And it was a winter that was a very wet winter. And at one point I was like thinking, there's one day I'm going to try to get to work and there isn't going to be a bridge. (laughs) But the Chattahoochee, from my memory, and I also grew up in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains and right next to the trailhead for the Georgia area of the Appalachian, and that's actually a waterfall. So natural water, I've always kind of been near until recently. And then also in the same area is a lake called Lake Lanier, which is a man-made lake. So I'm kind of always around bodies of water that either man-made because they're thirsty or nature has place for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I mean, that reminds me of one, one of the... One of the stories that I wanted to share in The Cult of Water, which is a true story from 1976, when I was a tiny little boy, and we had a, we had a, a drought and a, we had a very hot summer. 
for us, for the UK at the time, where temperatures hit 35 degrees, which is un- still is kind of unheard of, really. We got into the early 30s last year, but 35 degrees for, for a number of weeks, and we had bad droughts. And as a consequence, reservoirs, the level of water in reservoirs falls drastically, as we know. And close to Sheffield, close to the River Don, is an area called Derbyshire, where with my family, we'd go walking. They were, they were keen walkers, my mum and dad. And that summer, there was a plague of ladybirds that summer. And I remember the plague of ladybirds because they got in your hair and in your clothes and in your mouth, if you open your mouth. And, and we were taken to Lady Bower Reservoir in Derbyshire to see the re- re-emerging drowned church. So a, a village had been demolished to make way for a reservoir so that water could be fed to Sheffield and Manchester. And the village had been destroyed, but the church had been left intact maybe out of superstition or respect for the church, I don't know. And when water levels fell sufficiently low, the church spire would poke through the centre of this great body of water, you know, like Excalibur, um, you know, kind of poking through the water, an extraordinary thing. And this had happened because of the drought. And we went there as a family to see this. And it was something I'd never, I would never forget. And something that we talk about regularly as a family, you know, do you remember the, do you remember seeing the church? Yeah, I remember seeing the church. I remember the heat. I remember eating this ice cream. I remember walking the perimeter of the reservoir and seeing this thing and it being, even as a kid, you know, you, you're looking at it like you're watching something from television. <laughs> and it wasn't until I started researching different elements for the cult of water that I discovered that that church wasn't there and that an earlier drought in the 1950s had brought unwanted sightseers and swimmers and divers to a body of water that was not meant to be accessible to the public for swimming in because it's a reservoir. And so the authorities had destroyed the church and they'd knocked it down. So in 1976, there was no church spire poking through the body of water, but we all saw it and we all remember it. And so I put this in the book as a mystery. As, you know, was it, a, was it a family hallucination, mass hallucination? Was it like the phantom limb of an amputee, you know, that still gets the itching, even though the limb's not there anymore? Was the, the memory of this church held in, in this body of water? And such a potent symbol as well, a drowning church, because, you know, this is, you know, if water is the feminine and the church is the masculine and the church spire is the masculine, then drowning, you know, drowning in this body of water as, as a feminine, I thought it was a great symbol for the for the story. But the more I've talked to people about this vision of the church, the more people I've found who have seen it. And I've even found a newspaper article from the Yorkshire Post, which was writing about it as if it actually happened, which I thought was amazing. And my suspicions were aroused that this wasn't, that there was a mystery around it was because I couldn't find any photographs on the internet from 1976. I was thinking there'd be some Polaroid pictures, some brilliant Polaroid photos of this drowned church. And there was nothing there, only black and white ones from the 40s and 50s. And so it remains a mystery. The the author, Hilary Mantel, who won an award for writing Wolf Hall, which was serialized and did very well, I think, on Netflix. She's written a book about this. She's written a novel about um, about the the drowned church and the the hallucinations or whatever you want to say, you know, the visions, the visions that that many of us had. Um, and I have no answers for this and I don't want an answer for it. <laughs> I just, I love the fact that it, it happened and that I have this strong memory. And it was for me one of the most enchanting experiences in my life. And, and I can't explain 
I don't know whether it, the church was there or not. You know, it's kind of interesting that you brought up that line, "water has memory," because that kind of struck me, and I just I just had to look it up, and I was like, "Where have I heard this before? I've heard it before." Disney's Frozen Two, the sequel. Yep. They actually talk about water having memory. Mm-hmm. I've not seen that. Oh, it's adorable. Oh yeah, I'd highly recommend it because there's a lot of uh, a lot of old, I would even say pagan symbolism in it. It's on purpose. Yeah, definitely on purpose. Yeah, it's purposeful. They're taking a lot of Nordic traditions because the story of Frozen is supposed to be happening at post-Christian. Um, is it Scandinavia or it's one of those countries in, the in that area? Yeah. But. In this one, they actually encounter essentially the native population that is not Christian, but that's not really talked about. But there's a whole like spiritual arc to it and actual physical representations of the um, elements. elements. In fact, the yeah. fire element is a salamander, which I'm like, ah! So, yeah, if, if you haven't seen it, definitely, I, I would say look it up just because that's it's a great recommendation. one of those... Yeah, it's one of those, just because literally that line is in the movie, water has memory, and they Mm -hmm. actually play on it so well, and it's beautiful imagery, and especially with that story, I mean, yeah, I mean, if that church isn't there, there's something there, Mm. because the water wants it to be there. Mm. And it it is such a powerful image. For me, you know, my equivalent of searching for porn on the internet is looking for drowned churches. Um, there's some amazing, <laughs> there's some amazing images out there. And, and one of our, um, the UK's most insidious newspapers, the Daily Mail, who I have zero time for or respect for anyone who works for the Daily Mail. And yeah, I say that, but they have got a great, <laughs> got a great collection of, um, <laughs> of, of photos, the best collection of photos I've seen. And there are some, you know, I was thinking, oh, what would I like to do when, um, when lockdown sort of properly ends, how about just going around and seeing all these amazing places, particularly in places like Eastern Europe, there are some extraordinarily striking and, and mysterious images of buildings. There's something about, yeah, buildings, buildings surrounded by water is, is incredibly potent. Yep. That symbol kind of crops up in Cult of Water, really, of, with thalassophobia. All my life I've had, I've had dreams that are water-themed, and they kind of oscillate between me being in a dark, murky, great body of water, totally on my own and utterly, utterly terrified, which is sort of the cover image that I used for the for the CD, which is a little tiny red figure in a sea of blue. And other times the water dreams can be quite moving, quite benevolent, and mm-hmm. the, there isn't there isn't anxiety there. But there is, yes, there is something. I mean, Carl Jung talked about water as the symbol of the unconscious, and I think absolutely that it just works for me, this idea of stepping into the unknown and the fear of the unknown, the fear of thalassophobia for me. There's when I swim and I swim in Brighton Sea, I don't go out very far because of my thalassophobia, but all it takes is for me to swim over a body of weeds or a, a cloud shadow. And I cannot undo that primal response of terror that there is something underneath me. And I can rationalize it as much as I like and say, it's just some weeds, it's just a cloud, right? It's just mm-hmm. it's just whatever it is under there, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, you know, I just panic. <laughs> and and it's, uh, it is. It, and I know, I mean, I know thalassophobia is something that um, a lot of people relate to, to that kind of rational and dark fear. 
So my warning is if you ever are in North Georgia, do not swim in Lake Lanier. They uh, drowned a town, but they didn't destroy it before they drowned it. So there is some fantastic imagery of actual divers going down, getting pictures of the town. Oh, I'd love to see the pictures. And Mm. just there's one picture that is like the town hall and things like that. But the water is always you can't see through it at all. Barely. It's like a green, murky yuck. And you're always there's always something below you. It's like a constant Mm -hmm. knowledge. Like even in um, certain places, there's something below you. And there's always weird things that float up. And as a true crime lover, I'm too well aware of all of the weird things and stuff that has happened (laughs) around that lake. So. There's one, there's a drowned, there's a drowned village in Wales. I think it's called Capel Kellen, I think. And they kept the graveyard. And I think the church, the church was knocked down, but they kept the graveyard. So when water levels fall, the water levels have never been low enough that the gravestones have poked through. Mm-hmm. But you can look into the water and see the gravestones under the water. That's yeah. that's quite creepy as well. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something I'd, I'd love to see. Every now and then they yeah. have graves that do come up and they have to be replaced and repositioned and stuff. Wow. So, yeah. So I think we have um, exhausted this conversation. We definitely want to have you back. Oh, yeah. um, I'd love to be and back. I'm sure our listeners all agree. But um, before we go, David, how do people find you, your book, your album, all of the fantastic things you talked about? Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking. I have a website, which is Dr. Bramwell, which is Dr. Bramwell, and Bramwell is B-R-A-M for monkey, W-E-L-L.com. And I should say that I'm not a doctor. I haven't got a PhD, and I have no intention of ever getting one <laughs> and have no medical qualifications whatsoever. It became adopted as a, as a sort of stage performance name, and it is in the tradition of the, of the medicine show the shaman show that it's in the telling of the story not in the truth um and, and also the in brighton as well and like all good kind of coastal towns with with fairs we have palm readers and fortune tellers and they all adopt these titles of professor Merza and dr this and you know and and it's sort of in that tradition too and the Oddfellows casino you can find on Bandcamp, and cult of water is there amongst many of our of our records and you can also order, you can order the the most people seem to like buying the album and the booklet as a combination so alan moore's voice features on the album and and other people as well there's a brilliant witch from sheffield and when she features in the narrative and the booklet that accompanies it features a lot of or some of alan's words and, and his words of wisdom around water and water symbolism and folklore and mythology. And the artwork is by Pete Fowler, who some people might know for being the guy who did all of the artwork for the Welsh indie band Super Furry Animals. I don't know how popular they are out in the States, but they were pretty big over here in the in the 90s. So it was great to work with Pete Fowler. I think his, his illustrations for this are, are really beautiful. Yes. Awesome. Well, I was going to say, you know, thank you, you know, once again, just for taking the time out and big thank you for being our first international guest. Yes. I've really you. enjoyed it. I was, it was oh, an honor yeah. to be on the, on the podcast. It really is. Thank you. And of course, anybody listening, you can also find me on the interwebs. Of course, my Instagram is haggard underscore haggard underscore cosplay. I'm also on TikTok, AZ underscore silent underscore Bob. I use a lot of underscores. I'm sorry. Hashtag yeah. sorry, not sorry. And of course, Twitter. Underscore, not sorry. Yeah. (laughs) 
Have you got time for a quick last story? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you're obviously a big Kevin Smith fan, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, okay. yes. Okay. So, Hi. do yeah. you know, I can tell you my, my six degrees of separation, okay, with Kevin Smith. How much do you know about the film Tusk? Very much. It's actually one of my favorites of his, and not a lot of people know of it. So, that's no, what I love about it. No, they don't. It. Do you know where the story, the idea came from for Tusk? I don't. Okay. So, I have a friend, Chris who, like myself, enjoys a bit of a prank now and again. And Chris, he works for the Brighton Arts Festival here, or he did. And in his lunchtimes, he would sometimes enjoy putting a fake advert on a website or a fake advert for a, a room to let or something for sale. Just amused him. <laughs> and sometimes these would go quite far into, into social media. They'd be shared because they were very funny, very beautifully worded or whatever. So Chris put a fake advert in, where did he put it? I think he put it in the Friday ad, I think, if that still exists. And in the advert, it said, Brighton man seeks flatmate, free rent, provided you're willing to wear a walrus costume for several hours a day, be fed fish, and make a reasonable attempt to impersonate a walrus. <laughs> the reason why I want a walrus as a flatmate is because I was marooned on an island years ago. I was befriended by a walrus, and I've always missed the company of walruses ever since I was rescued. <laughs> and then he put that out there, and he didn't think any more about it. And he got over 200 responses, and it got started to get shared on, on social media. He worded it very beautifully. It's very funny. But also, it has a ring of authenticity to it. You know, it's quite deadpan the way he, he presents this. And it lands into the Twitter feed of Kevin Smith. And I don't know, you'll know, but I, I can't remember the guy he does the podcast, he's done for years, hasn't he, the podcast mm -hmm. with. And Kevin Smith's chatting with his mates, and he says, "Have you seen, I saw this on Twitter, and he, and he starts describing, he said, this kind of crazy British guy, right, you know, wants to, wants a flatmate who's willing to wear a walrus costume. And now, the way that Chris wrote the, wrote the adverts, it was just, it was done with kind of mischief in mind. In Kevin Smith's, imagination he was thinking that could get really dark couldn't it like what's this guy like who wants someone to live with him to dress as a walrus and then they're chatting about who might play if they were to make a film of it you know who might play oh. the you know the evil twisted weird you know landlord and then by the next episode of the podcast they'd been chatting about it so much and you know joking about costume and all the rest of it and then he says oh fuck it Do you know what we're going to do i'm going to put it out on twitter Hashtag walrus yes or hashtag walrus no. Whichever one gets the most depends on whether or not the film gets made. And the rest, as they say, is history. So is my mate Chris. And my mate Chris only found out about it. One day he just gets a phone call out of the blue. And it's and it's Kevin Smith saying, um, are you Chris Parkinson who did the walrus advert? And Chris is, uh, what, six months ago? Yeah. And he says, how would you like to be executive producer on a film I'm making called Tough based on your advert? <laughs> and there's a few thousand dollars in it for you. And Chris is, uh, yeah, that's great. It's like, right, I'm putting you on a plane tomorrow. You're coming over to the filming's already started. And, 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 that's, and Chris, oh, wow. Chris is in the film. Chris is in the film as well. And word, words Yay. from his advert, the advert that's in the film, that's on the toilet, I think he's on the <clears> toilet wall or something, isn't it? A lot of it is word for word what Chris actually wrote. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just realized I've heard this story. Yeah. I'm going to have to rewatch it now with that in mind, because that's, that's just going to add an entire new layer to it. I love it. 
Well, and also because of the life imitating art imitating life, it's because the film is about two guys who make podcasts about weird shit. And they chase one story, and that story gets to a dead end, doesn't it? Because I think the person accidentally kills themselves, in, in oh. you know. And so he's looking for another story, and it was Kevin Smith and his mate in their podcast discussing kind of crazy stories that led to that. Yeah. So it's some um, it's beautiful, beautiful moments in that. Yeah, oh, I love. I've it. heard this story before. I've heard it on a podcast. Now I have to figure out which podcast I heard it from. Oh wow! Okay. Ah, it's either. Well, I, I, in fact, I think we, I think we wrote about it in. What did we? Is that in a different book? No, it's in, in this this book I'm holding in my hand. Here we go. I was the walrus, page sixty eight. So I wrote a book which I mentioned earlier on called The Mysterium, which was looking at modern mysteries and or you know kind of strange things. And so I was the walrus. Oh, Gumtree, the Gumtree ad that inspired a horror film. So I interviewed Chris all about his. Um, his role in this, so it's actually yes, it's it's committed to, it's committed to a book that story. Awesome! <laughs> Yay! Anyway, very good. Awesome. Right. <laughs> that was a great story. Thank you. I love Thank it. You. I love it. I love these tangents. These are always fun. <laughs> <laughs> it makes the best. Yes. So um, you can find me guys on Instagram. Well, you can find the podcast at Instagram. It's mine. I don't need a separate one. And that is Pegan Pod or at Pegan Pod, Millennial Pegan Podcast. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook under Autumn Wolf. And you can read my blog at WordPress at Iron Wolf Circle. Then you can find the podcast, of course, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, like I just said. We are still building that website. So hang tight. It will be available someday. I make no promises. Soon-ish. I make no promises. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) I still make no promises, but we will have an actual website someday. Yes. You will. You will. I'm sure you will. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm on Twitter as well. I I didn't mention any of my social media, but Twitter's probably the best, which is just at Dr. Brownwell, again, Dr. Brownwell, and Oddfellows Casino are are on Twitter as well. Awesome. awesome. Well, again, thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Do we have any uh, new Patreon supporters this, this time around? Not this time around. So I'm guessing that ad that they heard during our break is going to get us some more for the next episode. Hopefully, because of course, your guys' support helps build content just like this. We get to bring on awesome guests like David here from all over now the world, not just Arizona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or other states. Yes. So our yes. next few people are in back in the States, but they are not in Arizona. So So again from all of us here at Millennial Pagan Podcast, Merry Meet. Merry Part. And Merry, Merry Meet, meet again. again.